This is the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. I'm Robert Peterson, the host and creator of this podcast that takes a look back at some of Bakersfield's most notorious crimes, events, and characters. Sometime around 1946 or 47, California and Kern County officials made the decision to relocate the Kern County Fairgrounds. For decades, the fairgrounds were on Chester Avenue, where Sam Lynn Ballpark currently sits. As Bakersfield and Kern County's population grew after World War II, so did the fair's annual attendance. So, the fair needed a new home, a bigger home. The powers that be at the time settled on a new location. They decided the fairgrounds would be relocating to a large parcel of vacant land bordered by Union Avenue, South P Street, Bell Terrace, and Ming Avenue. But back then, the stretch of Ming Avenue was part of Casaloma Drive. Officials set the fall of 1950 as the grand opening of the new home of the Kern County Fair. This location is where the Kern County Fair currently operates. For 72 years now, tens of thousands of residents have flocked to this location for family fun, amusement, and entertainment. What many people don't realize, in 1947, just three years before the fair moved to this location, this expansive vacant lot was the site of one of Bakersfield's, no, one of the country's most horrific crimes. This is the Bobby Sox Killer. On the afternoon of November 17, 1947, five-year-old Myretta Jones stopped by to visit her grandmother on her way home from school. It was a convenient stop. Myretta's grandmother lived on Vine Drive. Myretta lived with her parents and older sister just a block down the same street. So this was a common thing for the little girl to do. When Myretta got there, her grandmother was getting ready to cook dinner, but she was missing an ingredient. Grandma gave Myretta 20 cents to go to the Wayside grocery store on Casaloma to buy a can of tomato juice. Remember, Casaloma in that area is now Ming Avenue. And the building that was Wayside Grocery Store is still there. Today, it's Fairview Market. It sits at 607 Ming Avenue, directly across and south of the fairgrounds. That was about 3.30 in the afternoon when Myretta's grandmother sent her to the market. It was an errand that should have only taken little Myretta 15 or 20 minutes. But after 30 minutes had passed, the grandmother became concerned. So she called Myretta's mother. Remember, Grandma lived just down the street. Grandma thought maybe Myretta got sidetracked and went home instead of going to the market. When Myretta's mom answered the phone, she let the grandmother know that last time she saw Myretta was at 11.30 that morning when she left to walk to school. Immediately, Myretta's mother and grandmother set out looking for the young girl. 
They began at Wayside Grocery to see if Myretta had made it to the store at all. The two men who operated the market had indeed seen the little girl. These men said Myretta was with a companion, another little girl, an older girl, about 12 or 13 years old. That didn't make a lot of sense. Myretta was alone when she left her grandmother's house to run the errand. The two women continued to search for Myretta. As they knocked on doors in the neighborhood, more people joined the search. After an hour and a half, as the sun was setting, the family called the Kern County Sheriff's Office. Once law enforcement got involved, the media was notified. Later that evening, Bakersfield radio stations began broadcasting reports about little five-year-old Myretta Jones' disappearance. As word began to spread, more people from the neighborhood joined the sheriff's search party. A young neighborhood boy asked a deputy if they looked in the pirate's cave in the large vacant field nearby. This was the first time any adults had heard of this pirate's cave. The boy said the vacant field was a popular area for neighborhood kids to play. They used a cave in this field as a fort. The search party convened on this expansive dirt field. It spans the entire block from Bell Terrace to Ming Avenue between South P and Union Avenue. So they had a lot of area to search. But with the neighborhood kids helping direct the adults to the area where this so-called pirate's cave was located, it didn't take long to find. Deputy Otto Olofsson was the first to discover this location. It was actually a trench about five to six feet deep. Dug out of the wall of this trench was the cave the kids had described. Inside the cave, Deputy Olofsson discovered the nude body of Myretta Jones. Nearby, investigators located a blood-stained rock and shovel. They also found Myretta's discarded clothes in the proximity of the trench. The examination of Myretta's body led law enforcement to believe the little girl had been criminally attacked. Back in 1947, that was the wording they used to say she was raped. Investigators fanned out into the nearby neighborhoods questioning known sex offenders in the area. Remember the operators of Wayside Grocery witnessed Myretta in the company of another young girl? Investigators very much wanted to identify and locate this girl, not necessarily as a suspect, but as someone who could help with the investigation. Other witnesses who saw the two girls earlier that day were able to identify the unknown girl as 13-year-old Joyce Nichols, a student at Emerson Junior High School. The next day, while Joyce was at school, detectives went to talk to Joyce's parents. During this meeting, the parents provided very little information, so the investigators went to Emerson Junior High to question Joyce herself, to find out if she could shed some light on what happened to little Myretta Jones. When detectives took Joyce out of class and began questioning her, she admitted to being with Myretta before she died. 13-year-old Joyce Nichols said she'd run into little Myretta at the market. Two girls went to Joyce's house. Joyce did a couple of chores, then suggested they go to the pirate's cave to play. 
when they reached the secluded area where the cave was located. Joyce asked Myretta to take off her clothes. Myretta refused. Joyce then began slapping Myretta around, pulling her hair and hitting her. Joyce did this until the younger girl complied and disrobed. Police asked Joyce if she sexually violated Myretta. She denied these accusations. She said she didn't do things like that. Investigators told Joyce that doctors could tell that Myretta had been sexually violated. This tactic worked. Joyce finally admitted that she did rape Myretta with her fingers. Joyce claimed Myretta became upset. She began crying hysterically and told the older girl she was going to tell her grandmother. Joyce climbed out of the trench to look for a rock big enough to quiet the crying girl. Joyce confessed to striking Myretta six times until the younger girl stopped crying. Two of those blows Joyce delivered were to Myretta's face and head. After the beating, Joyce drug Myretta's lifeless body into the cave. Next, Joyce walked to a nearby canal to wash her hands. When she got home, she changed her clothes and acted as if nothing had happened. She ate dinner with her parents and brother, then went to bed. With Joyce's detailed and full confession on record, police went back to interview her parents again. This time, they had a confession of their own to make. The parents broke down. The couple admitted they knew Joyce had something to do with Myretta's death. They claim that on the night everyone was looking for Myretta, they were discussing the case. Their son, Joyce's brother, told the parents he'd seen Joyce in their house with the missing girl. After being told this, the parents woke Joyce up. She admitted to hitting Myretta with a rock, but couldn't explain why. Joyce's parents then went to the brother and told him not to mention a word about this to anyone. During the interview with police, Joyce's father told them that Joyce often lied about things. He just didn't know what to believe. Bakersfield citizens, of course, were outraged that Joyce's parents conspired to conceal their daughter's involvement in Myretta's death. Her dad told reporters, quote, if parents could put themselves in our shoes, they would see and perhaps understand what we were against. We discussed it several times. We didn't know what to do. After all, she is our daughter, unquote. This tragic crime made headlines across the country. Because Joyce Nichols was a young teenager, the press began referring to her as the Bobby Sox Killer. In January 1948, Joyce was sent to the Camarillo Mental Hospital for 90 days of evaluation. Psychiatrists there determined that Joyce had an educational age about two years below her actual age. Despite determining that Joyce was borderline mentally deficient, Mental health experts determined Joyce was sane. 
However, at her preliminary hearing later that year, Joyce was declared an unfit subject for juvenile court. As a result, the 13-year-old would be tried as an adult. Newspaper accounts from that time reported that Joyce appeared unconcerned during the court proceedings. On May 18, 1948, Joyce Nichols pleaded guilty to the murder of Myretta Jones. The court accepted this plea. Three days later, Kern County Superior Court Judge Norman Maine determined that Joyce was guilty of first-degree murder. Typically, a first-degree murder verdict would be an automatic death sentence. But because of her age, Judge Maine sentenced Joyce to life in prison. Joyce Nichols became the youngest person in Kern County's history at that time to be sentenced to life in prison. In October of 1948, only a few months after being condemned to life in prison, an appeals court ruled against the first-degree murder charge. This court found no evidence that Myretta's homicide was premeditated. The conviction was reduced to second-degree murder. The revised penalty could be as little as five years or as long as life. It's not known how many years Joyce Nichols actually served in prison. What is known is that she was married in 1953 in Fresno. Evidently that marriage didn't last because she was getting married again a few years later. Joyce died in Fresno on May 15, 2000. She was 66 years old. Her obituary at that time stated she'd been employed as a maintenance worker at the Fashion Fair Mall for 12 years. Resources used for this story, the Bakersfield Californian, the Fresno Bee, the Crime Blog as Close to Crime. This is Robert Peterson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. Just a little heads up. Next week will be the 45th anniversary of the 1977 wind and dust storm. That will be the subject of next week's episode. So be sure to catch that next Tuesday. Have a good week.